Today's episode of Movie Show Theater is proudly sponsored by Acme Comics, based right here in Peoria. They specialize in movies, music, comics, and games. And man, they have VHS tapes, which I still buy, CDs, they have just so many things, action figures, so many comic books. If you haven't been there, you got to check them out. They're at 2218 West Glen Avenue, and they're open till 6 p.m. most days of the week. Hey, Film Files, we've been brought together for another beautiful Tuesday night. If you've never listened to this show before, it's all about movies, and every week we choose a different film. You're listening to 90.7 WAZU, and this week's film was a request from Cody Cornwell. And anybody else can make a request for a film, you name it, and we'll do it within reason, obviously, for obvious reasons. So tonight's movie, well, just stick with us and we'll tell you what it is. I'm Jimmy Malone. I'm Stuart Randolph. I'm Ben Snowden. And this is Movie Show Theater. In a world where movies are everywhere, these heroes will make sense of some of the world's strongest films. Jimmy, Ben, and Stuart. This is Movie Show Theater. tactic where you say we're going to be reviewing a movie you'll be shocked when you find out which oh one oh my it is. god it drives me crazy oh, or they'll find wanna... like a really bad picture of oprah crying and it'll be like a little pop-up ad trainers hate him why is oprah crying yeah click here and download this program to find out all right all right <laughs> enough funny business quite literally this there's nothing to Laugh about this movie. So, yeah, so, so we did Requiem for a Dream from 2001, directed by Darren Aronofsky. And we did just do another Aronofsky film. We did Fountain. And I believe at some point I said that I found The Fountain to be the most profound Aronofsky film. And I eat my words tonight because... Had you not seen Requiem before? Oh, I've seen it a lot of times. But this movie, like... This movie hits me on all sorts of emotional levels. The uh, Sarah Goldfarb story is so incredibly heartbreaking to me. I mean, the movie uh, itself it, like begs to be picked apart. This the score is haunting. The visuals are. I mean, there was three well, or four. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just gonna say the way it was filmed was just amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it you know the split screens when they're laying right next to each other. Harry and Marion are just laying there talking to each other, and yet it's still a split split screen, and yet they literally could have been in the same frame, and you would have seen exactly everything. But I thought it was really interesting choice because it it shows the distance then still that exists between the two people, and yet. And yet they are so very close at that point. I mm-hmm. thought that was just a wonderful. And then all of the the real shaky kind of right up in your face sort of effects with uh, with uh, Ellen Burstyn's character Sarah and and the the really the descent into madness that she has, you know, all surrounding this this need for attention, this need for change, this need to to be 
wanted. Yeah. You know, and and that in and of itself is somewhat of an addiction, aside from the fact that she got hooked on diet pills that, you know, are basically uppers for any other intents, you know, for all intents and purposes. So and and it's just very interesting to me that 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 really came across. Now, the the movie in general, it is just so depressing. <laughs> Oh my god! I will agree with you wholeheartedly. <sighs> this is one of those wow. films too that totally captured the tone of the source material. Um, if you've read any of uh, Hubert Selby Jr.'s stuff, he also wrote uh, Last Exit to Brooklyn, which is along the same lines. It's not you know necessarily all about addiction, but it is also horribly depressing. Um, but this is one of those movies, obviously, that you're probably not going to just be uh, wanting to watch every single day or week. I own this movie, and I'll break it out from time to time because it, it it's trying. Like, if you're the type of person who doesn't do serious films, you should probably just walk away now. But if you're looking for, you know, something that delves into addiction and, you know, in the case of Sarah Goldfarb, it's a, like, full-blown obsession with trying to be something that she's not anymore to try to recapture a time in her life that she's ever going to have... Um, I think it's it's hitting on a whole lot of different levels. Well, I thought it was a really interesting conversation between she and her son when she basically flat out says, I've been lonely. I am so yeah. lonely. I don't have any purpose. I don't have anybody to take care of and no one to take care of me. I am lonely. And now I have something. I have something to reach for. I have something to look forward to. And, and I think that that in and of itself is just so devastating because you know that that happens every single day there are thousands and thousands of people across this country who are in that same position and and there's just they just have no one for whatever reason and they wake up they eat they do their thing during the day and they go back to bed and that's their life yeah. you know and i i just find that just devastating so well i thought it was really interesting uh as far as the the pharmaceuticals that she that she gets on, I work on a uh, at a hospital, and sometimes you look at these patient charts. This, you know, uh, there was a, a seventy five year old woman. This was months ago, but she had been taking pain pills to help her sleep, and she'd been doing it for a surgery from twenty five years ago. Oh my! And she displays the same <laughs> characteristics of a junkie, and you yeah. take it away from her, and like she. I don't want to say she got accidentally addicted because certainly she plays a a role of responsibility and ownership, but like you can definitely get an idea of what Darren Aronofsky's viewpoint towards healthcare is, because the scenes with the doctor are like just barely an exaggeration. I think there's a huge stigma, and for for a, a lot of it, it's it's not a stigma; it's it's accurate. But um, yeah, the the whole idea of you know this movie a lot of it yes it's about it's about drugs it's about addiction but uh, before she gets hooked onto the pills she's addicted to this idea of you know she has this undying positivity and in the very opening of the movie i had totally forgotten this but when they're arguing and she's in the closet you can hear the orchestra warming up and i i didn't put that together and then you can actually hear Darren Aronofsky tapping his baton right before the movie starts but he walks out and you can hear Sarah whisper, it's okay, Seymour. This isn't happening. But even if it was happening, it would be okay. It'll all work out. You know, it's it, it goes beyond positivity. And it's like, 
delusion. You know, she's completely in denial. She's, like, addicted to hope. There's this, like, I don't know what world she lives in that she thinks that, like, this is going to be okay. And when the pawn shop guy talks to her, he's like, just tell the police already. Maybe they can talk to Harry. And she doesn't even, like, consider it, you know. I mean, of course, she's not... Uh, she could probably use a psyche valve. I guess we all could. But I think I think it just it goes beyond she's really positive and hoping for the best like she's convinced that something's there that's not yeah you know this tv is chained here for the robbers i mean she doesn't even acknowledge what's right in front of her and you know the whole idea of jared leto yelling at her for her making him feel bad you know (laughs) well that's that's the thing about the harry character that's interesting is kind of like this transfer of guilt because he obviously feels it, but he's trying to transfer it to his mom. He's like, come on, Ma, you're going to make me break yeah. the radiator, Ma. And it's one of those deals, too. That's why when you you see what Harry's life is like, he's pretty much just, I don't know, drifting from one place to another. You, you have uh, a notion that he has feelings for Marion somehow, but she also happens to just have like a free apartment that may be supplied by her shrink you never really get to know I think it's the her reality parents. Yeah, it's, it's, it's her parents well, that don't, take care of that she says but... her parents do but she also gets money from her shrink for having sex with him so is she actually telling the oh, truth Arnold, to harry yeah. that's what i always thought yeah um i i always felt a really strong connection between the two at the beginning like their chemistry when they're in the elevator going up to the building mm-hmm. and throwing the planes off i mean their dialogue is that of two junkies who are in love but i think it's it's the most purest form of love that they know that they come from. Oh, I really think they have feelings for each other. And I, and I don't even know that it's just, you know, junky love necessarily. I think that it's, if you're going to get right down to the very nitty gritty of it, they are both two people who need, they need and need and need, and they're satisfying a need with each other. But I think that that is probably the purest need that either of them ever feel is what mm-hmm. they feel for each other. Well, until and, they've run out of drugs. Well, until they, they well, it's even that's <laughs> the thing. They had gone so far at that point that there was no return necessarily. Mm-hmm. And and he was sick already. His arm was in bad shape already. She was obviously just on that cusp of becoming. Well, basically, a you know, a prostitute for for drugs, and mm-hmm. and it's it's horrible the way that ends up taking that turn, and ending up really basically becoming just that for her. And and wow, she is so gorgeous in this movie, though. Oh, she's grown a lot since oh, uh, Labyrinth. Labyrinth. Oh, geez. But you know what? It's interesting. You look back at like what other movies she's done. Since Labyrinth, she's only done pretty serious roles. She's not done a lot of campy stuff. I Mm -hmm. mean, she's actually done some really good stuff. And so, you know, there are a couple here and there that are probably missteps. But for the most part, her her work is just stellar. And Jared Leto, he's a chameleon. This guy, I never would know known that was him. I didn't know it was him until I looked at, uh, you know, uh, looked up the film later. And I'm like, really? This is the same guy from... Dallas Buyers Club. This mm. is the same guy well, who's who going to play Joker coming one of up. The and... Wayans brothers. Oh my god! Did a great yeah, job. like did do a great uh, job. especially the one of the scenes that sticks out to me is the the limo scene where he's in right. the back, and you know they they're, they have this feeling of okay, you know we're really going to make it. All we need to do is get this set amount of pure. He's earning trust on the streets, and all of a sudden, oh well, hey, you have a white cab driver, and everybody's blown up like. Um, you know the the front mounted camera, which at that time 
probably wasn't, you know, just a cheap trick. Right. Really worked well because, you know, Ty, uh, who um, he, he Marlon Wayans plays. Really, I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah, Aronof- so, Aronofsky came up with that. It's like a harness with the camera on the harness. Cool, yeah, I didn't know that. But, you know, a couple of his. Ty's face is covered in blood, and he has the most horrified look on his face. And that you was see, brilliant. You see cop cars approaching. That was a really excellent scene, and I wish more directors would know how to yeah. use that kind of camera setup because from a technical standpoint, it's, you know, nearly flawless. Obviously, you have to have the right combination of elements, but when you take the acting of a Wayans brother once again, yes, I'm saying a Wayans brother and acting yeah. well in the same sentence, and I'm saying he acted well. I throughout mean, the entire movie, he did, he he did, did an incredible job. job. Yeah. yeah, throughout the entire movie, he, I thought he did very, very well. And, and again, coming from the comedic background that he and his brothers obviously have that it had to have been such a stretch for him at first but there's but if you think about it in in comedy and in in really they they, they comedy and really far gone drama share a lot of the same base feelings it's that just about to tip over the edge feeling and i think that it's not so much of a stretch i think that's why robin williams was so successful in his his uh, serious roles that he did, you know, and and was able to tap into that. I don't know if there are enough comedians out there who are willing to take that step. Mm-hmm. And I think that he really, you know, is it Marlon? Marlon, Marlon, Marlon yeah. yeah I, Marlon did a fine job and and really made me believe in that character. And and both, both he and Jared did a great job making me believe that these two guys grew up together. They genuinely cared about each other. Yeah, they were all about getting high and all about making that next big score and then making money. And they, at one point in time, made a lot of money, it looked like. I mean, yeah. they had a whole box full of 20s at one point. Yeah. And then, you know, as fortune goes for people who are, are junkies or otherwise, it just turned around on them and went south. But, um, I you know, I, I think it's interesting to watch the the characters themselves as the character as the movie progresses it gets less real and more of that in your face sort of feeling with the with the you know the the electroshock therapy for for sarah at the end where where she is just over the rainbow at that point and you know the the close-up shots on on um, the sex party at the Mm -hmm. end and the the close up shots on on Harry when he was having his arm amputated. I mean the 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 whole you know spoiler spoiler spoiler. But you know what? Those scenes and then the mirroring of them all in a bed and and rolling over at one point and they're all basically in the same fetal position, and and the the camera work was just gorgeous, just yeah. gorgeous on this. And you can't I can't say enough about it, but. But that right-in-the-face sort of shot that was, I think, first used for um, – was it the was it first used in that, that limo scene where the, the black gang gets shot up by the Italians? Yeah, because that was so. the end I think of that was, summer. That was Yeah, fall. yeah. I think that was the first time we actually saw that, and, and it was shocking. It is. Know? It's so – it's It's, dr- it's, so it's a dramatic switch at that point. And how you're looking at things, and you really get put into this this kind of sense that you are now part of the movie. You're right there, mm-hmm. and that was really well done. And 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 I think then it wasn't overused as we went on, and it was very when 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 it was used, it was used to very good effect. I think so. Yeah. Well, this this movie is is an excellent example of 
the magnitude of emotion that film can can give you and and can make you feel. Like I remember when I first saw it, that ending, I thought, God, I, this ending, it goes on too long. The last five minutes, it's like it's too much. It's too intense. It's almost too much for me to take. But watching it again so many years later, I realized that had they shied away even a little bit, they might not have achieved the same effect. You know, it reminds me of the first speech class that we all take. And they say, you know, the four purposes of giving a speech are what? To entertain, to inform persuade to persuade you know and these are all the reasons that movies are made so this movie obviously is very uh personal to darren aronofsky and he's you know has strong jewish backgrounds he's wasn't he's not a junkie but you know he's he he'll defend this movie when people say that it's a that it's a drug movie or a junkie movie he's very quick to point out no it's not a drug movie it, it's not it, it drugs are there sure but do you ever see anybody actually doing the drugs yeah not really well, All you, you see are those cuts. That one the time yeah. is the only time. The only other th- things like you see. It's like a sped up scene. It's like a sped up. You, you see the, the, the dollar bill rolled up. You mm-hmm. see the, the, the powder. You see the eyes, you know, dilate and the, you know, whatever it's going into the blood. But you don't ever see anybody actually doing it until that last scene when he's sticking the needle into that gaping wound on mm-hmm. his arm. Mm-hmm. And and at that point he's so far gone that you know I mean his arm is that that's in the final stages of gangrene in some some it states it was yeah. gangrenous and it was awful but it, to say that this is a a drug movie really I think point. you're really missing the point this is not a drug movie this is a movie about um, you could say it's about excess. You could mm-hmm. say it's about. Um, you could say definitely it's about need or the need for for something beyond yourself. It's it's um, it's an addiction film, sure, but just because you can even say it, it's more addiction than drug because even before um, Sarah Goldfarb is hooked on on the diet pills, her drug was food. Mm-hmm. Her drug was the television and that. That crazy TV program. Tappy Tibbins. Tappy Tibbins and the juice. God, he was in everything. Christopher McDonald. Oh, I know. Yeah. I mean it was it was just crazy though that 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 was what she was fixated on and excited to be on there. And mm-hmm. and I guess juice stood for something. Do you remember what it was? I can't remember what the acronym stood juice for. Juice by you. No, I just yeah. remember we never found out what the third thing is. They cut it out because yeah. it's supposed to be Sex. Yeah. Was it? Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Sex slash or having orgasms. This last one drives most people, people crazy. Yeah, well. I'd have to say Requiem for a Dream um, would probably qualify for a uh, most terrifying scene that's not in a horror movie. Like that whole um, hallucination Dude, scene with I the refrigerator. Dude, I kept thinking Aaron Austin a horror movie. Like if he did, I don't know if he ever would, but it would probably be pretty awesome if he did a straight up horror film. I don't know if he thinks that's below him, but just based on his work from those few scenes, like um, because there are isolated isolated incidents where the refrigerator will lurch at Sarah Goldfarb, but it comes full circle when you had, you know, her whole living room is like deconstructed and magically turns into the TV set. And she has right. like she yeah. has like the slender version of herself laughing at her and like the whole production crew and audiences in a conga line and they're circling her laughing at her and the refrigerator lurches at her, which it may sound ridiculous if I'm describing it, but if mm-hmm. you, you know, go to YouTube and watch that clip, you'll probably say, yeah, that's pretty horrifying. You know, yeah. it's, it's that, not... That really is a kind campy. of... Uh, no, that's a... That's a uh, 
Apocalypse Now descent into madness sort of scene right there. Yeah, I did kind of really. Uh, yeah, I did kind of laugh when she's hallucinating and she sees like the uh, images of the donuts and bagels that are like floating overhead, and she's like, "No, no!" But you can almost like feel a certain level of like relatability. I mean, she's got she refused to be part of this movie several times, and then she finally agreed. She lost mm-hmm. like forty pounds for it. And I was watching this on-set interview that they filmed on in 2001, and she was like, without a doubt, this is the toughest thing that I've ever had to do in my life, emotionally, physically. And I guess that scene where she's talking to the TV producers at the end, and the camera guy uh, kind of like lists away while he's filming and... Oh yeah, well when, when she's talking crying. to her son, when she's talking to her son and explaining what it means to be old and how how she was lonely and everything else. Yeah, that was that was interesting cuz it does and they end up using that shot because he actually fogged up the lens and couldn't see and so it went away but that they ended up using that as the final cut for that scene which yeah. I think is brilliant. I think that's a really hap- pivotal it's those, scene too. Those happy accidents that occur you know, in films that that become that become not just telling of the the movie itself, but probably of the director and the choices the director makes, they become almost um, you know uh, uh, what do you call it signatures for mm-hmm. the director in 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 their films. So well, I thought that was something he's else. Just, he's so intuitive with you know what he decides to keep, what he doesn't. Like I I I find if if we were going to call this just for a minute a drug movie, they've been doing like drug-themed movies since the 60s. And, you know, they, they have different stances. Sometimes it's glorifying drugs. Sometimes Reaper it's... for madness. Right. Sometimes it's a call <laughs> to action or a propaganda film, whatever. Right. But, you know, never before have I seen a movie where they used the dilation of pupils and red blood cells moving through blood vessels to sort of get your endorphins running. And, you know, some of these drug movies, Fear and Loathing... They use these uh, absurd imagery to, you know, try to get you to be where these characters are, which it's it's a fun movie. And I'm not knocking Fear and Loathing, but this is a technique and a strategy that I've never seen that it's like Stu said, a lot of the imagery is just like shocking. You're not expecting to see the chemical effects of this drug in your system. And then you are and you kind of like your endorphins kind of kick in a little bit. And I've, I've never I've never felt that in another movie. It kind of reminded me the way that they use like the quick cuts between the images, like um, the Evil Dead two cuts on steroids, like even more sped up and even more in focus on uh, processes that would be smaller, like the blood vessels, and all of a sudden there's just like that quick um, plop of powder down. Mm-hmm. You know, and I loved too that they never really mentioned the drugs by their proper names they would have mm-hmm. like the street nicknames for drugs mentioned mm-hmm. but they would never say yes we're going to go buy heroin now no nope. you know like i think that just adds to the fact that like what Stu said this isn't really a drug movie it's like we even talked about it during um the fountain recording that aronofsky tends to focus on the theme of obsession in one way or another and uh, addiction is a form Absol- of obsession absolutely. it doesn't have to be just drugs it just shows what happens when you take your obsession or addiction to um, well, it's illogical extremes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you just yeah. end up, you just end up in a bad way. Yeah, the 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 extremes of escapism in this movie, and like just totally date. You know, when the orange truck gets thwarted and somebody pulls a gun, and then you know they, between Ty and Harry, they shoot back and forth and convince themselves we need to go to Florida, we need to get a car, 
and Ty's not down with it. And, you know, but I think one of the reasons they're best friends is because they know how to talk each other into whatever they need to be talked That's into. exactly correct. And yeah. when Jared Leto first brought home the drugs, um, when they first started selling them, he was kind of in a, I guess I won't say healthy place, but he was in a strong place and absolutely not going to do them. And, and Ty is like, I understand that. But all I'm saying is we need to just try so we know how much to sell it for. You know, every character brings out the worst in every other character at some point in the film. And uh, it's like saying a baker saying to a morbidly obese person, you know, hey, you know, I just came up with this new type of cake. I'm going to sell this cake out, you know, and but you should really try some to make sure it's good cake. And then they end up eating all the cake. You yeah. know, I mean, it's just. I mean, it, that's exactly, I mean, that mentality of those two at that point is, you know, uh, you're right. They they talk each other into things. They they talk each other just basically to the point of, you know, self-destruction, uh, and particularly towards the end. And and the one character who I think has a true, true, well, hope of escaping that lifestyle is the Tyrone character. Mm -hmm. He's the only one at the end who had... I mean, yeah, he's coming down off his high. He's going through withdrawals. He's obviously ill, but he's not nearly as ill as Harry is. And he is definitely not to the point where Marion ends up being at the end. And, and poor Sarah, I mean, she's just... She's done. She's done. Had you a know? frontal lumbotomy. Yeah, lumbotomy but, well, and... essentially, that's what happened. Yeah. But, you know, uh, she just, yeah. Well, and it's interesting, too, because Ty, I mean, first of all, he is, you know, they're all self-centered. They're all addicts, and they all turn into junkies by the end. But Ty takes Harry to the hospital, and Ty is not at all surprised when the cops show up. And I think that, I think you're absolutely right, and I think that's the big distinguishing factor i mean as far as morality and like actual character goes because you see what happens when marion doesn't get her fix you know um going back to the scene at the grocery mm -hmm. store you know harry and ty don't get what they're supposed to get which is drugs and they were supposed to give some of those drugs to marion harry comes back to marion and says hey there was some junkie who pulled a gun and messed everything up and her first reaction is to absolutely freak out mm -hmm. uh blame him blame him go through and destroy the apartment looking for drugs of any kind that might be stashed away somewhere and then eventually at one point in the film harry says look here's this guy's number uh all you have to do is have sex with him for drugs and she that's what she does mm -hmm. you know and she, she has just, sex yeah. with her therapist for money for drugs yeah and that, yeah that that's 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 rock bottom right there i mean yeah. that's that's you know you're you might as well just be walking the street at that point if you're going to start doing that. And and that's a shame because that character, I mean, again, she's such a beautiful young woman. You just hate to see anybody take a step down that path. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the thing, and, too, that they do well is they make sure to um, show that every character has a specific dream. Like Ty wants to make his mother proud. You know, Sarah Goldfarb just doesn't want to be lonely anymore. That sounds kind of like a pitiful dream, but it is one, you know, um, it seems like Harry and Marion, like their dreams are kind of intertwined because Harry wants to help Marion with, you know, her designs and mm -hmm. buying the store. And it seems like I, I think they I don't know if they just took the picture or they did buy that storefront. Yeah, that, um, I think that's where they were living. Yeah, it could be. They ended up living there. They were going to make it the store and then they just ended up squatting because some some of the shots they show, it doesn't look like a residential. There's a lot of like yeah. spackle and drywall. 
But the 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 Sarah Goldfarb, I I don't know why that one seems to like hit me the most, but I love the metaphor that the red dress serves as far as representing like what she's lost and what you know what she can't change and for her it represents this you know her husband was alive her son was talking to her on a regular basis it was like i I mean just the happiest that she'd ever been and the fact that it won't fit you know there's just all sorts of devices that he puts in to you know he's already made his point we already know where he's going and at this point it's just clever and it's it, it helps drive the point home and and her her cute little friends that all sit out on the front porch with their chairs the um the elderly ladies like there's slight comic relief like when sarah yeah. goldfarb first gets her hair dyed it's supposed to be red but ended up it ends it up ends being up like being clown orange. orange yeah it really is just yeah. like small things like that when she's talking about her diet and she's like oh i had to eat half a grapefruit and she's talking about how she wants a bagel like yeah. that, but that's where the film starts so if you're not familiar with the the book or the film you're thinking to yourself you know where is this going uh there's not really any that I can think of any any humor. No, there is no funny. But there shouldn't be, really. Yeah. I mean, there's some entertaining things towards the beginning with, with Harry and Marion where they're doing goofy crap and, you know, like the, the whole hitting the alarm on the escape door or the exit, you know, emergency exit, and, and doing small stuff like that. But that's, again, that's just a window into this particular couple's personalities and what they're willing to do and the extent they're willing to go in order to get a rush, to have, mm-hmm. to have you know, this healing. Get to see Marlon Wayne's butt. Yeah. For well, all you ladies out there. Yeah. Right now I'm checking out and for all, you men, for all you men who also <laughs> enjoy the male physique, yes, Marlon yes. Wayans appeared to be in shape for this role, and he shows his posterior. Yeah, I thought it was a really <laughs> interesting... There was a couple actresses that turned on the role just because of that shot of her in the mirror when it shows right. a little bit of her pubic hair right. on top. Yeah. How strange. It was I just mean, a weird choice. Really, it doesn't really not really detrimental to like the idea of what he's trying to get across Mm-mm. and i don't think he gains anything except that uh, i know i've heard him say in interviews that he has like an ongoing fascination obsession with human sexuality and a big part of this well, movie was kind of that. like addiction versus the human spirit well, steel cage of, match who wins what i was yeah. thinking of with that scene is he had to reflect that she was at least partially nude because she's just staring intently at herself i don't know if he was trying darren aronofsky was trying to say something about marion's level of comfort with herself or she's just stoned and staring at herself and he wanted to show her pubes which might be that one more than anything else yeah it could be her way of like this is this is me completely exposed completely vulnerable except for her tank top yeah yeah good point but again, you know, I, even then, I, I I had to look at the scene really closely to realize what I was seeing. It's not gratuitous yeah, yeah, yeah. in any way. It's not it's not overly sexualized. It's not. I don't I don't think that it. You could even say that that was a a sexual scene. It was. She's obviously beautiful. She's obviously staring at herself for some reason in that scene. But again, I don't know that it goes much further than she was just high as a kite and was just kind of, you know, pants. and not wearing any pants. Yeah. So, uh, again, I don't know. I, I I don't think that the even, yeah, until the very last, I don't even think that the nudity is that big of a deal necessarily. But it it, it is there and, you know, the 12-year-old and me enjoyed it. So, yeah, you know, but uh, the, the, the biggest flaw 
or the biggest fault, and I know that this was done on purpose to show the hypocrisy of the system and everything else. The minute that Harry walked into the ER and with the arm that was gangrenous and everything else, the minute he showed the arm to the doctor, the doctor did not react the way any doctor would have. He took two steps backwards, grabbed a couple of vials of drugs off the counter, and says, well, it shouldn't I'll be have been right on there, there anyway. No, it shouldn't have been out, yeah. period, if it was a narcotic. At that point, the doctor doesn't worry about legalities or anything else. He worries about his patient, and he takes care of his patient. At that point, he would have been in the hospital for as long as it was necessary to get that arm better or to remove the arm and then get him better. And then the legal part would have come in later if they wanted to press charges against him, if they wanted to hold him, if they wanted to do whatever, incarcerated him. There would have never been any doubt in my mind that that would never have happened in today's society. Not like that anyway. I mean, maybe degrees of it, but yeah. not like that. I well, mean, and Tyrone wouldn't have been arrested. No. It, Unless he was holding. Exactly, exactly. Or, you know, or something else. And I mean, if he was, they should have showed that. Because they should have shown not it, yeah. implied. No, it's not and implied. And the fact it. that, you know, I mean, I, I think once again, it's we, we see a little insight into Aronofsky's tainted view of medical field. Oh, yeah. Well, I think a lot of it just has to do with the novel. Because yeah. that's, that's, how well, that's, the novel, too, right. that's how the novel happened to end. It's just like things kept on getting more extreme. And you could tell by a certain point that... Um, is almost like a scathing satire about, you know, society's functions, you know, like law enforcement, um, medical professionals or mental health, you know, with Sarah Goldfarb's case. Um, and that was another one that I just, yeah. I could know. There's no way. Really I'm sorry. That doctor? He, that doctor. Yeah. I'm sorry. He was so detached the entire time. He showed no, he showed no interest in her as a person. She was just somebody who he was going to to treat, at least the doctor at first, the, the older doctor, the one later on when she's been committed, I'm yeah. going to assume. He actually showed some genuine concern. But even then, the orderlies, oh, geez, the orderlies, when they're force feeding her with the tube and everything else. Yes, I know she needed nutrition, but if she needed it that badly, don't force it down her throat. Put a needle in her arm, mm -hmm. you know, give her give her intravenous nutrients as is necessary until you can treat whatever the issue is that's causing her to refuse to eat, you know, and, and then, you know, slowly help her to eat. But don't have some guy hold her down yeah. and then jam a tube down her throat. Or up through her nose and down into her stomach, which is, I think, what that was, a feeding mm -hmm. tube yeah. that they were trying to do. So, Well, I think, you know, and this is, like Ben said, I, I'm sure that it was more in the book, but whether it was the book or Aronofsky's artistic decision, I think it's more of a statement on ageism because if somebody would have been, you know, there's this stigma, you have doctors not listening, but also society giving up on the elderly. And unfortunately, that, I mean, at least from my view, I had a patient a couple weeks back that had, he was 86, he was a healthy 86-year-old, um, except that he had a carotid artery that was 95% blocked, um, and normally he would be rushed into surgery, and he, um, they decided to forego surgery. Not because they didn't care, not because they didn't think he was important, but because he's 86, and when you're that old, the rate of survival, you know, drastically drops, and... So I think in the case of this film, if it would have been somebody who was in their 30s or 40s that was having these medical issues, 
um, maybe the doctor would have taken a different stance. I, you know, I don't know about that. To me, it kind of reminded me like the vibe of you know the ending of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Right. Nest, yeah, very much so. Which and that's that's the thing too. Like, um, so the novel Requiem for a Dream is set in the '60s slash '70s, but it's kind of more ambiguous in the film. So it's kind of hard to say if it's more of a throwback to that era and, and you know, Brooklyn, right? In the book? Oh, well, yeah. 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 So it's it's kind of hard to say if that's supposed to be more of like a throwback or if it's supposed to say, hey, you know, this is still going on. Like the whole electroshock and lobotomy stuff is kind of past even in, you know, the year... Electros- Electroshock it still is being used, but it is so much different than mm-hmm. what it is, what it was viewed as in this film. And, and back to your point, it, it, you know, you're not sure when it is taking place. The television itself obviously is a tube television that is being taken out, and it's not worth ten bucks now. And they get twenty for it but at the a pawn shop. One, the newer one, the newer one, kind of modern. And it, it's hard modern to think about yeah. one, yeah. too. I mean, yeah. The, yeah, it looked more like a almost like a big rear projection or something almost. Yeah. But, it, but again, or like you know, the, or like your idea of a big screen, right? TV. And in the in you know in the past fifteen years since this movie was made, obviously there have been huge advances that you know gotten everything's gotten thinner and bigger so uh but again it, it's one of those things where you're not sure when it's taking place but i think the the point is and and this is today it's so prevalent is how we treat not just the elderly but how we treat the mentally ill people who are genuinely truly mentally ill and and unfortunately we're not getting the message in this country that the mentally ill need the attention. Now, you can't look at people and say, oh, yeah, they're mentally ill, because that's something that is not, you don't wear it like a badge. You don't wear it like a hat. You, you, anybody you know right now can be suffering from some sort of mental illness and, and you would never know it. And, and that's where, that's where the debate now, we're kind of, I'm kind of getting off topic a little bit, but it comes back to the movie, but that's where the debate in this country over gun control and, and everything else is just ridiculous. Guns are a part of our life. Guns are always going to be there. A gun is not the problem. Being able to get the gun is not the problem. It is the fact that those people who are so desperate for attention, so desperate for help, feel that there's no other way out of the situation than to take a gun and just solve their problems by hurting others. That's the mental illness that I'm talking about. And people are like, oh, no, they're don't. they not mentally ill. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. And I'm sorry, there are very few true passionate, just off-the-cuff killers in this world who just go out and kill and and are not mentally ill. Yeah, well, and it's sad that we don't usually see that until after the fact. After the fact, and that's the point. That's why, that's why even in my profession as, you know, as, as a school counselor or guidance director or whatever, you know, anytime we see anything that's even a, a, a blip on the radar in our student's life, we do our very best to make sure that they're getting the attention that they need so that they don't end up falling between the cracks and becoming one of these people who has to take or feels that they has to take have to take drastic measures later on in their lives. It, it, it ups and downs in lives of, of, of everybody's life. And, and yet here we are in, in, in this movie itself. It, it starts out in kind of a good place, even though it's with the, the two knuckleheads stealing the mom's television, essentially. Uh, but again, this movie is such a descent 
from that point, I mean, that's a low point to begin with. Mm. And it's such a descent. If there was just anybody else in these people's lives to just look at them and say, no, you can't. No, you shouldn't. I mean, Marion's parents, they're absentee parents. You don't even know where they are. Tyrone's mother. I mean, we see a flashback with Tyrone when he's super high at one point. And uh, it looked like a caring relationship to me, even mm-hmm. though he, you know, he apparently he didn't get what he needed. And geez, Sarah, I'll tell you what, she has that group of friends. Why is, and, and they're supportive and they're happy with each other. Why is that group of friends not checking on each other more often? Mm-hmm. Why is that group of friends? Until the very end. Until the very yeah. end, you know? I mean, they didn't even realize that she was sitting alone in her house. Or if they did realize it, they didn't. Maybe it's because they were so wrapped up in their own lives, they just didn't take the time to go and see. But if you see somebody who's going through something like that, you have got to stop and say, can I help? Mm-hmm. Because it's at that moment, your one moment of saying, can I help, that could make the difference between ending up like Sarah Goldfarb or you know, ending up uh, you know, getting the help that you need and it, before it becomes too late. Yeah. It, it just irritates the living daylights out of me that people focus on problems that are not real problems. And yet they, because the problems that are not real problems, there is no solution for those problems necessarily. And so, yeah, let's focus on that and let's talk it up and down and let's let's sound important about those problems. You know, I mean, uh, pro-choice versus, you know, abortion rights is another thing that gets thrown out during political season. Let's throw that out there and, and air that out again. You know, let's let's just, you know, when it has no bearing on anybody except for the person who's going through it at the time, it does not affect anybody except for the person who's going through it at the time. Gun ownership, I have no problem with guns. Own a gun if you wish. Learn how to use it correctly. Keep it away from your kids unless you're teaching them correctly. And then keep it locked up and safe. But don't just give it to somebody and assume they're going to do something good with it. You know, I mean, it's easy to get a gun. I could get a gun if I really wanted one. I don't want one, though. But again, I could get one fairly easily. You're more likely to do more harm with with a, uh, you know, a sharpened pencil than a gun more than often than not. The problem is, is we publicize it. We bring it out there. We make it into this this problem, again, that's unsolvable unless you it's an all or nothing thing. And it's never going to be that way in this country. We're apparently built on freedoms and those freedoms need to be respected. And I'm sorry. Uh, but we also have the have to be very aware of those around us and be aware that that the mental illness is what causes the issue, not necessarily the gun. You know, it's the need again. Back to the the movie, it is the need for attention. It is the need for change. It is the need for help that we're just not fulfilling. And and if anything, this film just screams at that the loneliness the 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 bitterness that that she feels and the confusion towards the end that Sarah feels is just so dramatic and, and all of them they're just so lost to these characters yeah they're just so lost and this oh jeez Marion's character is probably the most lost at the end just because she you just know where she's headed you well, just it's, know it's so and, interesting too after the first time she hangs out with Ty's friend and she's like, oh, no, I'm not going to come. I'm not hooked. And he's like, oh, so no, see you, no, I know. I'll see you on Sunday. I know, I know you're not. I'll see you yeah. Sunday night. Yeah, exactly. But, um, yeah, I, I I think another, you know, they all have their 
specific scenes that are like the point of no return for Marion, the point of no return for Ty. And for Sarah, I think that, you know, the fact that she's taking these diet pills, no, it's not the best way to lose weight. Is it habit forming and dangerous to your health? No, if you take what you're prescribed. prescribed to take. But, you know, the first time that she takes an extra pill and she goes to the doctor and she's like scared because they're not, they don't have the same effect. And the doctor or the, the nurse actually uses that buzzword. Um, adjusted. Oh, you're just adjusting to them. And you're being desensitized by them. Your tolerance is increasing, and your body requires more to have the same effect as with any drug. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like they kind of transition between the actual drug dealers and the doctors who who are kind of a drug, drug dealer dealers, at yeah, that I point. Mean, yeah. I love a scene where Harry comes to visit, and he kind of has that early. Intervention with her. Oh, when he's when talking he about it, yeah. Her, when he like, comes, you want up us? Yeah, exactly. And I know that junkies have a hard time with intimacy and and close contact with family members, especially. Well, but, it's shame more than anything at that point. It's yeah, the it's shame, shame that they like, feel. I and, know that you're. I know what's going to happen with this. Exactly. Well, he was he was projecting on her too because he's like, absolutely. oh, mom, you're on drugs. It's just like. Wow, yeah. you're what are you on? at her, but yeah. you're on, you know, at least a very strong drug. Yeah. If not two or three. And, and, and then weed on top of it. Well, yeah. plus, too, it's just going back to him and his lifestyle as a junkie. He's just throwing out lies and just, you know, pretty gross deception. Yeah, Ma, I'm, you know, I'm in importing and exporting and my business is doing really well. <laughs> No, you're you're selling drugs. You know, and that's that's another thing too that this could be almost like a a political view on is, you know, how people are treated once they are drug offenders, which is not really treated, they're punished and there's no real rehabilitation from uh the criminal system. It's just more like we're going to throw you in jail and hope everything goes well. Mm-hmm. And usually it doesn't. Sometimes it does. And some of those guys are thrown into jail at one point in time for, you know, half a baggie full of weed. And they're put in jail for five to ten years. Yeah, it's really that. And and it was just because they were carrying half a baggie full of weed where now, luckily, that sort of thing is like a ticketable offense or something. You'll get a ticket. Yeah. You know, depending upon how much is on you, which, you know, that is truly the change in our society that I like to see because most of those people are faultless other than just having it on themselves. Yeah. Well, it really makes me want to go back and read the source material because the first time that I watched this, right around when it came out, I was in high school, so it was like probably 2002. But especially when it comes down to like drugs and legalities and... They did do a good job of kind of making this movie look timeless, but there are certain definable events and certain definable laws that existed at a very, you know, there's landmarks and, like, spots that we can use to see, okay, well, this is how things have changed. Um, So I'll definitely read the book. One thing I like doing is watching one film, then watching uh, a film right after it that has one of the same actors. So I watched Requiem for a Dream, and you have Keith David playing Big Tim. Uh, Keith David also played Childs. So I'm like... Played who? Childs in The Thing. The movie oh, The yeah, Thing. Yeah, so I'm yeah, like, yeah. oh, so yeah. maybe he's really The Thing. Or he just made it out and neither... Um, I hate to ask this, but wasn't he also in The Stuff? No. 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 Are you sure? 
I don't I'm believe so. Pretty Maybe sure you should he was watch in it again and just to see, Stu. I'm going to have to look that up because no, I think that he was. No, again. I'm really not going to. No, you can't forget that face and those teeth, man. I feel kind of bad for him because. Well, Darren they needed Aronofsky, a creeper is what they needed. Yeah, Darren, Darren Aronofsky needed to find a creepy dude. And so he must have called Keith David and he was like, say no more. Like that voice <laughs> and that smile and, oh, man. But that scene at the sex party, that famous ass-to-ass line. Oh, jeez. Ass-to-ass. Yeah, ass-to-ass. Ass. Oh, God, it's horrible. Bunch of over overprivileged, spoiled, white business Ugh. wives at home feeding the kids probably it's probably one of their wives birthdays foods in the microwave hasn't talked to her all day anyway mm-hmm. anyway it would be cool <laughs> if you know not that if if childs survived and became big tim that it would be cool that he was doing that i was just more interested in like okay is he the thing because that's the great thing about yeah. um john carpenter's version of the thing is that you never really know yeah. No. The world could be doomed, or they're just cool. Neither of them yeah. is infected, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. True. We can go back to uh, Requiem in a little bit, but we have about ten minutes, and I thought we could do a live chat about the movie that we should do next. Sure. What do you want? Well, the first thing that popped into my head was, we need something light. Yes, the, yes please. So I was like, hmm, Halloween season, Beetlejuice might be fun. Could yeah, be. Uh, actually, my uh, my my stepbrother is, has helped out with uh, haunted house that's in Canton, and it's called Spooderver Haunts. You know, there's a cheap way to plug it. Um, <laughs> but no, is they were buy tickets online, Ben. Uh, I don't believe so. I think you have to you have to buy them in person. But they were projecting Beetlejuice on one wall and then Casper on another wall because oh. what they'll do is they'll have um, for a couple of hours just like a less scary version. Of the haunted house, right, we don't have like right. complete darkness and actors. And actually, the the people the the people who are in costume inside are more like directing the kids through. They're like, oh, that way. They're not more. They're not like, hey, I'm gonna, you know, eat your liver. Yeah, which yeah, <laughs> which is probably what's happening during the. That would adult be the time, worst yeah. ghost ever. Hey, I'm gonna like eat, eat your, your liver. liver. Hey, uh, boo and shit. <laughs> hey, um, I'm scary, right? All right, cool. Yeah, that's cool. I, 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 one of my patients told me today that they have been playing horror movies projected on the side of the Bartonville Peoria State Hospital in Bartonville, which is pretty sweet. They played The Shining. I would have gone to see that. Interesting. That would have been fun. And I wanted to mention on October 29th, it's a Thursday, Halloween, the original 1978 is playing at Will and Knowles Movie Theater. Ooh. And I am there, and I bet Ben will be there too. I wish they'd play the thing instead. Yeah. We could also do the thing. We could do the the first the and the John remake Carpenter. because I really like the remake. It was okay. I haven't seen the remake, but I'm already going to say that I am really biased against it and it has to do something impressive because I love... I think that the thing is John Carpenter's masterpiece. Yeah. Well, you know, like, it's not a true remake, right? It's like a prequel right. that sets yeah. up... Well, this is just one tiny example. This isn't a spoiler, but there's a scene where... Somebody has an axe, and they hammer an axe into the wall in the exact same spot, in the exact same set that it picks up with in the thing. So in order for it to work, it would have to be a faithful uh, tribute, but right. maybe you don't think it is. I don't know. I thought it was pretty cool. I'll, I'll give it a chance. I'll say that much. I've, I've been curious about it. I've seen it so many times on different you know sections of mm-hmm. IMDb. I'm just like, 
at some point I'm probably just going to have to watch it to say that I did, that I gave it a chance. Sure. You know? And then there's, there's the fact too, that at least with Carpenter, the thing is part of the apocalypse trilogy, you know, cause there's the, the thing and Prince of Darkness and in the mouth of madness are all related, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which I didn't even know until I stumbled upon a couple of articles and thought about it and said, Oh, that does kind of make sense. So yeah, it won't it won't be our true Halloween episode. So we could save something really good for that. But we could yeah. go lighter and do something like Beetlejuice or like another spooky. I think Beetlejuice kind would of... be a good one. Yeah, yeah. It's about time we did something by Tim Burton. Yeah, have we? Well, we did Batman Returns. I don't count that. Ben counts it. Okay, well, it's going to be Beetlejuice then. We should okay. do reverse holiday movies. We should do My Bloody Valentine on Halloween. Hey, no. that's not... Even though it's not really a Valentine movie either, it's just like a... It's kind of a smaller part of the movie anyway. Yeah, which is funny because it made the title. That was a bad movie. At least yes. that remake. The remake, I was like, eh, it happened. Whatever. <laughs> that's probably the best, that's, best point of view. It happened. Whatever. That's, I, I mean, it's it's kind of sad, but that's how I look at remakes. I know a lot of people get up in arms because they feel like somebody is committing sacrilege against their favorite films. But I'm yeah. thinking to myself, they're just trying to make money, and it doesn't ruin the original film well, in any way. See, yeah, that's why the know? fanboys that got all rabid over the Star Wars films and how horribly they were, and they should never have changed them. You should never have changed them, or this, that, and the other. Well, it doesn't belong to you to begin with. And George Lucas. Your don't pleasure. watch it. Yeah. George Lucas is throwing in the money in the air and laughing maniacally. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, you know what? You don't want to watch it? Don't watch it. But don't bitch about it, either. I mean, come on. You you didn't put in the time to come up with the story or whatever. Don't complain about how it's changed or anything that they do next. Yeah. Just sit back, enjoy the ride for what it is, and shut your pie hole. Yeah, because you know you're you going to go... creepy living in your mother's your basement beardos. Yeah, neck beards. You know that you're going to spend hours in line waiting to see it anyway, no matter yeah. how much crap you talk. That's hilarious, too, because I see a lot of that on some of the Facebook pages that are like that are movie-based, and they have a lot of, you know, superhero movie updates, and it's people that are, you know, totally pro-Marvel who say they hate DC, and, you know, DC people who say they hate Marvel, but then it's like the Marvel people are going to be in line for Dawn of Justice and try to be first in line, and the, the DC people are going to be the first people in line for the next uh, Civil uh, War. Yeah, you know, exactly. It's just like, who are you fooling? You're going to go see it, and you're probably going to complain about it the whole time, but you're going to go see it, so you're complaining about something, and you're just giving Marvel slash Disney more of your money. Exactly. So exactly. if you really want to make a kind, make any kind of statement, just don't show up if you hate it so much. Yeah, and if you don't show up, not going to make much of a difference anyway. Yeah, it's probably still going to make a billion dollars. Like both yeah. of those films that I, I mentioned, Civil War and <laughs> Batman vs. Superman, I know I'm seeing that. Like Civil Batman War Superman. will do well. I'm I'm really curious to see how well Batman vs. Superman will do just because of their, it, this is untried, uncharted territory where this will be like one of the first times DC is actually in a in the larger format, the film format, taken two of its primary characters and put them together. You know, uh, it, it pretty much other than this, it's always been okay, Metropolis or Gotham or you know wherever. You know, there hasn't been any others really. It's always been Superman or Batman that's been highlighted. And you know, every now and then they'll pop up with a really bad film of something else, but. I'll be honest, they're doing wonderful... DC is doing a great job with their television shows. Yeah. Arrow, which Flash. is... And, and The Flash, and the tie-ins with that. 
Constantine, I really enjoyed. Unfortunately, it got canceled. But the guy who plays Constantine is going to be on uh, in uh, Arrow. He's going to come back and be a recurring character in Arrow. So that's how they're tying those universes together and those storylines together. And, you know, and then when was it Dawn of Justice is the uh, Justice League movie when that finally comes out? Dawn of Justice is going to be uh, Batman versus Superman. Superman. Is that what that but is? They're, they're yeah. building up to, to a, a Justice, Justice League, League movie. movie. Yeah. Well, so they're trying to well, they're trying to do what well, Marvel did so well. Yeah, they well, accidentally Aquaman did so and Wonder well. Woman are going to be in uh, Dawn of Justice too. Yeah. So they're well, introducing it's... characters. So they're. I hope they do it right because I'm like I am not horribly pro Marvel or horribly you know pro DC because Batman has always been one of my favorite superheroes Absolutely. and I always loved like the X-Men and especially Wolverine, Wolverine. so yep. I think it just works out for them both to succeed because it creates healthy competition. You know, I think just DC really hasn't had a whole lot of titles out there, so it's hard to say, you know, who's winning so to speak, but we all win if they make quality films. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah well, absolutely. it's such a Marvel has they have very well-defined qualities and they obviously work but they're very colorful they're very light they're very chipper and they all kind of have these same characteristics so it's easy for dc to be like well what are they missing first of all we need to be darker we need to do what marvel isn't doing and a lot of people were bashing age of ultron which i won't bash it it wasn't it as was good an, it did what it was supposed I to do it was, it was great it was an entertaining it was, summer it was fine i personally liked the first one better oh, but yeah. i'm not gonna no, bash it that's, no no that's no the worst i, I, I personally like the first it. one better too because you didn't know what to expect you walk into age of ultron and you know what to expect you there they are their roles are very clearly defined you know why they're there and what they're doing and now it was at that point it was time to introduce new characters and that's where the vision was introduced which was in my opinion, one of the better introductions of characters, just because he was able to pick up Thor's hammer and hand it to Thor with not even a problem. So, yeah, that was awesome. And, you know, the the Scarlet Witch, which, you know, and Quicksilver... It didn't last very long. It didn't last very long. I think the Scarlet Witch will be a good addition to the Avengers. She was better when she was uh, villainous in the start of the film. Uh, My favorite scene was when... Tony Stark was hallucinating, yeah. and he saw basically all the Avengers dead, which is something they can't do a whole lot of. But I think what Marvel's doing is pretty smart because they've had these criticisms leveled at them that they're kind of one note, but they're filling in gaps. Like with Ant-Man, it was more a sci-fi heist film, kind of wacky. There's right. going to be a Doctor Strange film that's cannot wait. probably going to be really, really wacky. That one's going to be on the dark side. Sweet. That one will be on the darker side because I'll tell you what, Dark, Doctor Strange, half of the time he spends in other dimensions and most of those dimensions are touching hell in some way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. And so and that is really going to be on the dark side because he fights demons and monsters and other dark magicians and stuff like that. Demons! Exactly. And I can't so. remember if, if Marvel now owns the Blade property, but oh my there's God. talk of bringing Blade back. And even if... Wesley Snipes being Blade. I really don't want to see him I think he's the biggest advocate for that. He's like, come on, guys. I just just want to be like, pull a Mean Girls and be like, Wesley, stop trying to make Blade happen. Blade is not going to happen. That's exactly right. Ryan Reynolds is doing much better things. He was the best thing to ever happen. Deadpool. He's going to be Deadpool. Deadpool. Look, that one I can't wait for. Look, an R-rated superhero film. Yay. Yay. Exactly. We've all been waiting for it. (laughs) Anyway, yeah, we've been talking about Requiem. 
I do like the movie. I think it's a very important movie uh, for people to see. It's not a movie that I often crave to watch. It's not a movie that necessarily beckons a second viewing unless you are with a large group of people the first time you watch it. Because there are a lot of details in this movie that you probably missed, but you didn't need to see them to put the story together. It's not hard to put the story together, but beautifully shot. The music, we didn't really get a chance to talk too much about, but... No, the no, music, no, no. the main no, uh, no, no. overture, yeah, the the summer overture, the Kronos uh, Quartet did the score, and that song was used in like Everything. six or seven different trailers that I can think yeah. of. It was in Assassin's Creed. Yeah. It was the used rings, in like two all, towers. yeah, Two Towers, Return of the King. The score is beautiful. I it, and it's another great example of how strongly an orchestral score can affect you and, and bring to the mood. I think in this film, if it didn't have a, a strong score, it would have been a shame because, you know, Requiem is a mass for the dead. Right. And Requiem for the dream, for a dream, obviously it's the, it's the celebration of, of, or mourning of the death of these dreams that these people have. And, and if you're not, if your music does not reflect the tone of a true Requiem, a true mourning, a true feeling, then you're you're losing out. But I think that this nailed it. I think it did very well. Yeah, I I've listened to the soundtrack just by itself. Yeah, I had it's like yeah. a, a two disc soundtrack. Oh, because there's some of the songs in the soundtrack are like twenty seconds long. And I also forgot to mention one of the things I read about this movie is that uh, he was Darren Aronofsky was inspired by hip hop videos with the editing because mm-hmm. he edited it himself. And most movies have like four or five hundred takes, and this had like over three thousand takes. And there's just so many quick takes just to to keep it going, to keep it high energy, high pace, high adrenaline, excess all the time, intense, in your face, nonstop. Even the slow scenes, like the uh, when Harry's eaten with Grandma Goldfarb, it's every couple seconds it it cuts. Sorry, Ben, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Oh no, I saw I had to say. Oh, okay. That's all I have to say about that. Well, it appears as though we're doing Beetlejuice next week. Somebody else can say it one more time, but don't both of you say it, because then we're going to have a ghosty on our hands. Beetlejuice to the three. Um, I just cubed it. Oh, no. Oh, we should have done cube. No. Uh, nah. I, it's worth a watch, but I I watched it again this year, and I was like, eh. Yeah, yeah it's like the best student film we've ever seen. No, yeah, kind of. It's just like, oh, they, they extended a Twilight Zone episode. Okay, yeah. cool. Pretty much. Uh, if you want to hear the rest of our podcast, you can do so at movieshowtheater.com. I think this is our 40th episode. Yay! We're middle-aged. Uh, we are. We are. We've done an episode for every year that we've been alive. You can also leave us a message on the Movie Show Theater Facebook page. Let us know what you want to watch. Let us know, ma. And, uh, yeah. You can hear us every Tuesday night on 90.7 WAZU. So until next time, I'm Jimmy Malone. I'm Stuart Randolph. I'm Ben Snowden. And this has been Movie Show Theater.